Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to the New Books Network's Middle East Studies podcast. I'm Ruben Silverman, a researcher at Stockholm University's Institute for Turkish Studies, and with me today is Dr. Shivan Mahendra-Raja. He's a research fellow at the University of St. Andrews, the author of The Sufi State of Jam, History, Religion, and Politics of a Sunni Shrine in Shia Iran, published by Cambridge University Press in 2021. Today, we will be discussing his new book, A History of Herat, from Genghis Khan to Tamerlane which was published in 2022 by Edinburgh University Press. So first off, I'd like to welcome you to the program, Dr. Mahendra and ask you if you might tell us a bit about yourself and how you came to this focus on the region of Khorasan, first on Jam, and now on Herat. Uh, well, thank you very much, uh, Dr. Silverman. And let me, if you don't mind, please call me Siobhan. Um, and thank you very much for hosting this. and. Uh, New Books Network for doing this. So thank you. So about myself and how I came to Corson. Um, I was studying with Professor Richard Bird in Columbia a long time back, and he, as some of the listeners and you know, um, focused a lot on Corson. He wrote his thesis on Nishapur and did a couple extra books based on his work on Nishapur. So I got interested in Nishapur. And he also did point out about the Sufi saints of Jam as well as uh, the Kharkids of Harad as being understudied aspects of uh, Islamic history as well as Iranian history. So I began exploring, but I didn't really have a thesis topic in mind um, until I visited uh, uh, Tarbati Jam, which is where the Sufis of Jam are based in eastern Iran. And uh, this is like 2009, I believe it was. And uh, yeah, 2009, just after the Nauru's holidays in uh, the Persian uh, New Year. And the shrine was really beautiful. It was undergoing some re- restorations and renovations. I met some of the people there, started talking to them, and, you know, I just said, you know, I think I've decided on my topic, which is going to be The Saints of John. And that was the first book. And uh, the second book is that we're talking about history of Herat. But they both actually have the same origins, which is my thesis. So when I was writing the thesis, which was a very narrow topic, as all theses tend to be, uh, about the Jami Sufis, which I covered really their Mongol and Timurid period, um, during that research, I realized there was need for a history of the Harat and the Kartids, as well as a, a, a comprehensive history of the Saints of John. So I didn't really know how, how to work on the, or how to recast my thesis in terms of the Sufis of Jams. I actually started working on the history of Harat first. And then somewhere along the way, I had my eureka moment, and I said, you know, I'm going to recast the history of the saints of Jam as the history of the shrine. But that meant doing a 900-year history of the shrine, um, which is about 800 years more than most theses go. So for the book version, 
very quickly, uh, since we've done this in another podcast uh, last year, um, I won't go too much into it, is a history of the the shrine in Tarbatijam in eastern Iran, its architecture, its political history, uh, some of the social history about the religious teaching in the madrasas there, as well as in the Khanakhas and about the Sufis and the Sufi practices, their theories as well as their actual practices. So it's a bit of history, some politics, uh, some religion, and uh, a wee bit of anthropology in there as well. And I'd really encourage people, if they're really interested in Islamic architecture, Islamic history, and about living institution um, of, you know, Sunnis still practicing their their faith and their Gnostic beliefs and having, you know, sparkling shrine, you know, and and the venerations of saints in Islam, uh, that would really be a good source to have. So, once that was done and dusted, I turned turn back to the history of Herat, which is what we finished up and put into print finally in September of 2022. Thanks. Well, so like you said, a, dis- a dissertation is narrow, and what you're focusing on in Herat is a na- you know, somewhat narrow 150-year period following the Mongol conquest. Um, so maybe we can start out by talking about what readers should understand about Herat and the region more generally at the beginnings of this period when the Mongols arrive. Right. <clears throat> now, uh, Khorasan is rather a broad term in terms of culture as well as geography. Now, the geographical limits of Khorasan continue to be debated and discussed, but generally speaking, it's around from the southeastern uh, corner of the Caspian Sea, all the way up towards to the Hindukush, towards India, and not just north across the Oxus, and further on south towards what you would call Sistan and Balochistan today. I'm just giving you a very broad uh, phys- uh, geography. The cultural uh, boundaries of Hara- uh, of Khorasan are far greater because they cross into and they still continue in. Um, modern Uzbekistan, for example, where there are Persian-speaking communities in 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 in, in Pakistan as well, and uh, even up to Xinjiang in China and Turkmenistan. So, and the cultural import of Khorasan is great in terms of literature, language, and Islamic studies, Islamic sciences. Now, I mentioned Richard W. Bullitt before. You know, he did a lot of work on the madrasas of Nishapur as well as on the Hadith collections. And so for, as one example, I would say is that the uh, madrasas that which became ubiquitous around the Islamic world had their origins, as he shows, in Nishapur, which is one of the major cities of Khorasan. And many of the Hadith collectors in, uh, that we know, like Muslim and Bukhari, are Khorasanians. Um, so there was a great contribution to Islamic studies, as well as Persian and Arabic literatures, because even in Islamic studies, they wrote in Arabic, even though they were Iranians. Um, so you have Khorasan as a great uh, producer of culture, science, literature, whichever, you know, you, you want to look at it, as well as in in things such as astronomy later on, 
um, and 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 uh, and sciences and agronomy and hydrology as well. Now, Herat, to bring it down to one of the four major cities of Khorasan province, uh, the others being Nishapur, Marv, Bach, and Bach. Um, these four cities each had its turn sort of as being the most, uh, I wouldn't say most important, but thriving more, having producing more. Nishapur at one time, as as mentioned, was sort of like the big Hadith capital and center. Uh, Bach, at the eve of the Manga conquest, is probably more important, if I had to put a subjective term to that, than Harat. And these are cities that basically were agricultural economies. Uh, they're all oases, uh, in oases, so there was a lot of farming in there. And farming was actually important, not just for food, but that was really part of the economy. People were sometimes paid in grain uh, as well as in cash. And uh, Balkh, Marv, Harat, and Nishapur were in turn uh, destroyed to some extent or the other by the Mongols. Well, so once the Mongols arrive, that's really when, when your book uh, starts, the Mongols put, uh, put political leaders in place, try to exercise some, sort of, they have policies towards the region. So maybe we can talk about this now. So first, can you give us a general overview of this 150-year period that you're looking at? Um, maybe emphasize to us some of the changes, that, the broad changes that occur over that time period how the Mongols change their policies, what sort of people are brought in at different times to implement the Mongols' policies, and uh, yeah, how we can think broadly of the time period before we get into any... You know. Sure. Um, let me just give people um, a general idea of the structure of the book. Um, I mean, first, I mean, once you get past the introduction, you know, the first chapter is about the Mongol conquest. What I did here is make this accessible to all readers, not just for a specialist audience um, or readership. So it it talks about how the Mongols uh, took offense at some issues that were uh, that happened and decided to invade uh, Central Asia, the lands just above the Oxus, like what we today call uh, Uzbekistan and Turkmenistan. And then go below the axis into Bach, uh, what is today called Afghanistan, and then further west towards Iran. So I did this to just show the sequence of the Mongol invasions to kind of put, a, put some coherence to which cities were attacked first, what was happening, and where the Mongols moved from point to point. So... Once we get in, get past that, we get into five more chapters, which is political and military history. Now, this might be a bit too much for people who are not really interested in political and military history, including myself, by the way. I had to do it <laughs> um, because it was just required that I actually, you know, required, but I thought it was a good idea to kind of present as much of this coherent uh, as a coherent picture as possible of the military and political history over 150 years, because there was quite a lot of it going on. 
and I couldn't gloss over it. I couldn't, you know, summarize it. I had to judiciously provide as much information as I could, and non-specialists might be bored with it, but they can read through some of the introductions to the chapters, as well as the end of part one, which is, I have reflections and conclusions, so that would help them with kind of get a grasp of what was going on. Because that 150-year period was, was very complex, because what happened once the Mongols came in and they invaded and they ruined a lot of things, apart from killing a lot of people, a lot of uh, you know, a lot of people also left. They fled. Uh, it's not, you know, people tend to, I mean, writers tend to focus on how the Mongols killed and how many they killed and how many they deported and how many women they, they seized and took away to to Mongolia. But I think another big part of it is also how many people didn't just stand around waiting to be murdered or deported but fled. And they moved to other parts of Iran. They moved to the Hejaz, uh, Turkey, and to the Levant, uh, and also to India. India actually got a very large uh, uh, transfer of refugees. And so the area was depopulated. And what happens then is with the Mongols not imposing any real control over certain areas and it being relatively depopulated, armed bands emerged. Uh, again, an uncommon phenomenon if you, you know, follow what's going on around the world in certain places. Uh, I think a modern expression is ungoverned spaces. And when there are ungoverned spaces, um, militia bands pop up and they try to take control of certain areas. They become rubber bands. They go around trying to pillage um, if they can, steal what they can. And so Indian Mongols had to try and put some order in to this. But then about 30 years after the Mongols had uh, ravaged Khorasan, the Mongol uh, Grand Khan, he decided that he needed to revitalize Khorasan. And the reason for this was taxation. Um, They were running out of money and armies run on money. And the Mongols, in order to keep marching, in order to keep invading other countries, they needed they couldn't rely only on plunder anymore because there was nothing left to plunder. People had fled. So there was no active farms that they could raid, for example, to steal, uh, to steal the grains or any gold or silver that might have been hidden away and to capture people to be used as arrow fodder, as they were called by one scholar, or to, you know, uh, taking young able-bodied men and women uh, as slaves, as concubines, whatever it might be. So they had to create an environment in which people came back to the lands and they felt safe to come back to the lands and were encouraged to engage in farming, in trades. And by trades, uh, I mean things such as weaving, uh, pottery, ceramic ware, silverware, metalware, the usual uh, sort of necessary economic activities of 13th, 14th, 15th century uh, Eastern Islamic world. So in order for them to do this, they had to first foster a culture of security in the region. This is essential wherever you go in any society, Um, just to put it into, you know, simple terms 
if you think of living in some, you know, living in whatever city you happen to be living in, whether it's London, New York, or Stockholm, if the streets are not safe and there were no police and you were at risk of being robbed, beaten, murdered, um, and violated in some way, people don't go out of the streets, or if they're there, they, they leave that town. So this was actually the precondition for any kind of economic activity was to try and impose some sort of security. And uh, this is one of the things that the Mongols tried to do. And then um, they brought in this gentleman, Shamsuddin Mohammed Kart. Um, he was uh, an Iranian, a Persian speaker. He had served the Mongols loyally for before, and his uncle had served him also before. And they installed him at Herat, gave him money, armaments, and uh, authority to govern a very large region of Khorasan from what is today eastern Iran all the way in almost all of Afghanistan up to the Oxus and to the borders of India. And this was easier said than done because he had the authority, he had the weapons, he had an army, and he had support from the Mongol imperial court. But to impose his will involved actually negotiating with these petty lords that had popped up all over who had armaments. In modern terms, they would be called, you know, what the UN and the Washington like to call warlords. Um, so he had to negotiate with these emirs and commanders and those who wouldn't negotiate with him, he would have to fight. So over the several decades of his rule, he died in 13, uh, sorry, 1278. <clears throat> he had a lot of negotiating to do, as well, a lot of fighting to do to kind of bring some of these regions under control. So by the time he died, he had actually established a rough framework of uh, polity, uh, of what he would call the, the first uh, Cartan state with some local lords supporting him, some that he had put under control. But there was very little development going on here at this point because when you are having so much conflict and the king is spending so much time running around trying to playing whack-a-mole, trying to knock this fellow off because he's causing trouble, um, it's difficult to have, you know, any, any, any real sustained effort at economic development. There was apparently some based on the sources, uh, and I know we will talk a bit later on about the sources, some economic development. And again, by this, I mean, agriculture was coming back, animal husbandry was coming back. And that means also that those who come in as traders, uh, sorry, as uh, uh, craftsmen, the, uh, you know, the weavers, the potters, uh, they, were back in business. How much they were back in business, we can't really be sure. So I'm going to try and telescope, as, uh, you know, kind of compress a bit more of this because you go through a number of different carted rulers. So the Mongols got basically done with Tarot in 1222. They installed somebody 30 years later. And it's only around 1300 that one of the carted rulers basically said, 
he's going to defy the Mongols. The Mongols had said, you can't rebuild the fortifications of Herat. You cannot have any sort of, you know, construction inside the city of Herat. You can build outside. You can have your farms. You can do, you know, workshops out there. You can have factories out there. You can have, you know, shops out there, but not inside the city of Herat. The city of Herat is one mile by one mile square, roughly. And he just basically told them to go fly a kite in so many, not so many words, but he started rebuilding the fortifications. He did did the walls of Herat, he did the citadel and the gates. Uh, and this provided the security for people. And so th- from that point forward, the walls were never taken down. The citadel was never taken down. And they just kept getting stronger and stronger over the, the the next generations and bit by bit you know people came back there were a lot of political actors in here uh, because not just the Tajik people the Kartids and their people when I say Tajik I should also clarify and say that the even though the ruler originally was what you might call Tajik purely Tajik there was a lot of marriages along the way with Turkic people and Turkomongo people, and so their blood was diluted. So by the time the dynasty ex- expired uh, in 1381, you could say they were fairly mixed. But they were Persian speakers, uh, but married to... And, and, and the society at that time, too, I should really clarify this as well very quickly, is that it was actually quite mixed. The Turkic, uh, Turkic people, there were... Uh, native Haratis, there were Pashtuns, there were people from Sistan, from Balochistan, there were uh, different Mongol factions as well in the city, and they formed part of the society of the city and of the region. But there were all sort of external political actors causing trouble. Um, the Mongol Empire started splitting with, you know, Genghis Khan's death. He basically held it together, but he had four sons, and so... There was a lot of going, conflict going on between them, which is why today you, even the, even some observers who are not specialists in the region might have heard of things like the Golden Horde, Blue Horde, White Horde, the Chagatai, Zilokhans, and the Yuan Dynasty of China. These are all different Mongol groupings, and some of them were fighting within Iran. Some were outside. Some were the invaders, invade, which is. Why I said when I started off, I didn't really want to do too much political history, but I had no choice because there was so much going on that I had to try and sort through this and like let a reader know how much how the different parties were acting at one given time or another and how that impacted on development and society in in Harad and in Khorasan generally. And I say this is because I tend to focus more on social and economic history. I'm more interested in that. And but in order to understand the social and economic history and the development or lack of development in a particular area, one also has to understand the violence and the political events going on around them. And this is what I try to do in chapters two, three, four, and five uh, and of, of the book, is to try and give some idea of these 150 years of political actors, the migrations, the invasions, the raids, the you know the conflicts, and all these different things that were going on, and to sort of show how each of the different Khartid rulers, from Shamsuddin Khart to the last one, Peter Ali Khart, tried to handle all of these political and military uh, problems or crises that were presented.
Hmm. Well, so, I mean, as you say, then let's, let's think through some of the different policies they enacted. Uh, because as you say, the, their goal is to revitalize the city to make, to encourage people to come back, to create revenue. So maybe we can think through some of these things first with, uh, taxation, so maybe you could talk a little bit at some of the Carted policies or some of the Mongol policies. How did they try to restructure the economy to get people to come back and reinvest in Herat? Sure, good. Um, before I get to the taxation, let me also mention the second part of taxation is conscription. Um, and this is an easier one to answer, so let me just give you this one very quickly. They want people back is because the Mongol army was not really composed of Mongols exclusively. Uh, they had lots of different uh, groups in groupings in there. Uh, for example, they might say the histories might say there were Muslims serving in the Mongol army, by which they mean Turks, Iranians, Persians. There were Indians, there were Chinese, and then there were all these other people who were conscripted. Um, I think if people really want to look, read a bit more, Tom, uh, sorry, Timothy May has written a lot about the Mongol. Uh, art of war and about the Mongol militaries, and that's a really good source to look at in terms of trying to understand the complexity of the of the Mongol military. But conscription is really big for them. The the Shamsuddin Muhammad Karts uh, in thirty years that he was ruling, they provided some almost seventy thousand men for the Mongol armies, and other areas like Isfahan and Qom, and, uh, and also provided a lot of men. I'm sure China did the same. So that was also a very big part of their taxation. This is taxing the humans, basically, to get them to do, you know, to fight. And, uh, fight. Now, in terms of taxation, now this, this, this is something, again, we're spanning over uh, some 130-odd years, from like 1250 to the end of the Carthage uh, era in 1381. So let's just keep it at 130 years. period. There were, there were a number of different strategies going on between both the Mongols and with the Mongols as well as with the Kartids, some of which we don't really know uh, because histories don't focus on the taxation issue. They might just mention um, that, you know, there were taxes were being imposed on this and that, uh, but they won't say how much of the tax or what type of tax it was, whether it's the Islamic ta- taxes like the usher or the courage, um, you know, whether it's the 20% or, you know, whatever it might be. So we can have to, uh, we would only have to be able to guess what types of these taxes are. Um, but later on, we get, a, we, we get a decent idea of what's going on. And that this goes up to around the early 1300s when you have Rashid Din, who is the Kartid vizier. He's a rather famous chap. Um, he has, you know, wrote the compendium Jamil Tawareh, and um, he served the the Mongol uh, rulers of Iran out in Tabriz. He and the Mongol ruler of Iran at the time, Ghazan Khan, they came up with the idea of doing land reforms, and what they wanted with these land reforms was that there was so much f- fertile but fallow ground in Khorasan. I'm focusing on Khorasan, but they meant other parts of Iran as well. And they wanted to encourage people to come in to take up this land, clear the clear the 
clearly uh, the fields, if they were, you know, being overgrown, to rebuild the overground or underground uh, waterways and repair dams, various cisterns, various other things. And in order for them to do this, they offered uh, different tax rates, like depending on the complexity involved, all they had to do was clear clear some brush, clean up a clogged overground canal, then they would get one particular tax rate and they could just continue to um, to, to um, harvest that land and to keep the profits and pay this particular tax. It's just not to avoid, you know, just to avoid complexities in a conversation like this, let's just say, you know, tax rate A. But if they had to deal with um, more complex uh, renovations or re- reconstructions, for example, underground canal, the Kanat or the Kharis, as it's properly called in Persian, um, if they had collapsed or were silted, they had to build dams, they had to uh, do a reservoir, then they would get a different tax rate because there was more cash out of the investor's pocket. Because keeping me in mind, the Cardinals are not putting any money forward. The Ilkhans, that's the rulers of Iran in Tabriz, were not putting any money forward. All they were offering is, if you do this, you get a favorable tax rate. That's it. Because they wanted the economy to grow. They wanted people to be, you know, farmers to be producing food. Um, and this is the policy that they... Yeah, yeah, they enacted. How well it worked? That's a bit debatable. And I'm, I'm not sure we can have that debate here uh, because it's, it's, it would get into too many um, diff- you know, different areas. But that seems to have encouraged rebuilding and investment in the Herat region. And some of the people who took up the offer of favorable tax rates for investment in land and in and in hydrology, uh, in farming and in hydrology, were the Islamic institutions, the Khanakhas, the mosques, and the uh, madrasas. And we, we start seeing at this point uh, a number of them holding properties, which they were developing and drawing wealth from. And they became uh, managers of lands and estates in, in, the, in the 1300s. This expanded in the 1400s under Tamerlane and his heirs because they basically made these Sufi shrines as their agro and hydro managers. And you look at the shrine of uh, Imam Ali in Bach in Mazari Sharif from 1480 on, that became one of the major uh, agro and hydro managers of the Bach region. This is what Robert McChesney has written about in his uh, book on Central Asia. And I covered a bit of this in terms of the Sufis of Jam because they also became major hydro and agro managers in uh, in Khorasan in the Herat region, 
and then the shrine of Abbasid in uh, Mahana, which is now in Turkmenistan, they also became major uh, hydro managers. And then later on, the Timurids in Herat region, the shrine of Abdul Ansari uh, became also major hydro and agro managers. So these people took over and they got favorable tax rates in, in order to, to uh, cultivate. And again, we don't really have things like output, you know, in terms of how many bushels or what the actual tax revenues were, but it just seems to have been a thriving economy. And I say the reason we don't know some of this tax revenue stuff is because sometimes they might just give a general histories might give something like the tax revenues of Khorasan were, you know, I'll just make up a number, say 10,000 dinars. We don't really know what the 10,000 dinars meant at the time, you know? Was it a big amount, small amount? What did 10,000 dinars actually buy you? I mean, a cup of coffee? We don't know because there is no comparison to this. We don't have a standard, a benchmark against which we can measure, you know, what were the revenues before? Were they 5,000 and they went up to 10,000 next year? Okay, no, that's something. But we don't know. So uh, the historians of the period, and I know you wanted to talk a little bit, I think you mentioned about some of the sources and so on, but so the historians of the period tended to focus a lot on uh, on political and uh, military history, about what the kings were doing, about this battle and that battle. And they don't really give us that much information on tax rates and uh, tax revenues. Uh, there are things that actually drive historians crazy. You know, like they'd be like, oh my goodness, you know, the price of food went up, you know, and a loaf of bread was now eight bucks. And I'm like, great, but what was it before? You know? <laughs> you know, just like you just bang your head and just go, oh man, I wish they would tell me what the price was. I think I have a couple of notes in there, some caveats about these things as well in the footnotes. Um, about these, uh, about the prices um, that are quoted, as well as about the taxes, and about the taxes too. It's kind of funny. There's a, there's a history by some fellow who's named Hamdallah Mustafi, and the Mustafi basically means financial administrator or accountant. And um, I would just, you know, when I read through that history about him, I kind of think if he was an accountant today, he would be fired because he's like so haphazard about the economic data. You know, he's just like says this and that. I mean, it's like, how did you ever get your get, get your degree, dude? You know, it's kind of like it, it, we can. Uh, but also the same, we shouldn't try to measure too much against modern ways of pro- providing economic data because uh, they didn't really often understand. I think they were also trying in some instance to praise how the ruler was. Oh, yes, he did such a wonderful job. The revenues went up, you know? Well, you know, it occurs to me while you're talking that if the government is uh, relying more on these different shrines, for example, to manage um, water resources, things like that, is this, um, how, how do you understand this? Is this like a, a, a centralization of power? Is this helping the centralization, centralization of power? Or is this weakening the control of the rulers to sort of uh, have various different institutions in society managing resources in this way? And how do you think about that? Is this a change? Is this a is this a return to an older way of doing things pre-Mongol, or is this a new form of rule that we're seeing take place here? I'm just curious what you think about that. 
Uh, that's actually really a great question in terms of, uh, you know, was it a, a pre-modern way of doing things or, or a modern way? I think centralization tends to be more of a modern way of thinking. Um, you know, this is sort of like what the political theorists kind of believe in, that every country should be run um, you know, the French style, you know, or as one of my friends put it, you know, you know, Maoist style in China. Um, so, you know, and in the U.S. too, I think since FDR, we've gone away from the federalism to more and more power trying to come to the hands of the center. Um, so the way they were doing things, though, was, I think, a bit more pragmatic. Um, I think there was centralization to the you know to the extent is the center being Tabriz of the you know Iranian sorry the, the Mongol rulers of Iran they want to have a certain amount of political control and to get some revenues kicked back to them of course but they understood that they couldn't control the lands beyond the region around Tabriz without the help of subordinates, loyal subordinates who controlled those areas and maintained, you know, whatever version of law and order was being maintained in that area and sent back some revenues to the capital. And these whether we want to call them federalism or devolution or decentralization, these are all kind of modern terms, so I'm kind of trying not, trying not to get stuck on those. These, all these satellites, shall we say, who revolved around the capital of Tabriz um, were supposed to stay loyal. They were supposed to control that patch, maintain security, and to develop those areas. And in so doing, they also didn't have the money to to engage in what you might call a centralized system of governing, of controlling uh, the economy, of trying to control um, the water supplies, water, you know, the hydrological network, or how farming was being done. And they were willing to delegate to loyalists, and this is always going to be the situation. If you're in the know and you know the right people, to, you know, you're going to be one of these people who are going to be allowed to get the lands that were being given away. And so that's where the shrines, there was the shrines became powerful is for the reason that they had the contacts. They also had money for the most instances from endowments, from alms. And it was also beneficial to the rulers who let the shrines do it because it seemed pious for them to say, oh, you know, I have made a donation to this shrine or to this mosque. And they are also doing, you know, uh, controlling the, the, the this, this set of, this, this tract of land and farming and doing all of these things. So it made everybody look good in, in terms of trying to do it in that respect. But it's also a money issue because in order for a state to lay out, you know, money to dig canals or to, to clear up clogged canals, to build dams, it's... It's a fair amount. And, and to do that, I mean, I have some maps in the book about the hydrological network of Herat. It's very complex. And that is actually a bit more of a simplified map. Uh, for people who are interested, they should look at Terry Allen's book on, on Timurid uh, Herat. And he has some 
um, maps that fold out, you know, if, uh, the folding maps, they're huge. And you can see this network of all these canals and rivers and tributaries from the Harad River traveling, you know, traversing north and south of the city of Harad. There are over 30 different waterways, main waterways, and there are many sub-canals. It's a very, very complex and very uh, elaborate network. And this is just the above-ground network. There are also underground water networks. For a state to try to take control of that and to monitor it, you know, who's doing what, how much water is being allocated to this section to this quadrant, you know, the northeast quadrant is getting so much today, and southeast quadrant will get so much the day be- day after. That's a lot of work, involves a huge bureaucracy, so much complexity, and money. And it was easier, I'm guessing. Um, I mean, sources don't always say certain things. Um, um, people should understand is that there is a bit of inference involved as well, some guesswork as well. Is that found it much easier to just to tell delegate to the shrines and to the rich uh, landholders y'all work out certain things on your own but they did establish certain certain policies and I, I discussed it in one of the chapters in terms of a water distribution system the water distribution system is also tied to taxation the use of water mills uh, how much the water mills were taxed at um, as well as uh, compensation for the water managers. There were local. This is a, a, a water manager, meaning somebody who was in their in, in that particular region, who was basically a supervisor. He had underlings who would, you know, check out on the, uh, keep an eye on the dam, or the secondary water uh, mm-hmm. water outlets to make sure that there was no flooding, that nobody was taking more water than they were entitled to. And that really is a lot of the water distribution system is about fairness. Uh, this goes back a long time in Islamic law as well as in Iranian law, uh, is about the equity um, as well as the law of sharing water. Um, because they always want to make sure that some people don't take all the water and leave nothing for the other farmers. So there are very strict rules as well as uh, custom and practice, or large, or worth, as it's called, that determines how much water. And this can be timed right down to like, you know, two hours and seven minutes uh, of water per farm, and that's it. That's what you're getting for the day or for the, for the week, it might be. So these are things that the cartids, um, they kind of establish certain boundaries, and they left the water managers and the landlords, uh, sorry, the, the farm farmers and the shrines do actually take care of the nitty gritty. Hmm. Well, then this brings us to another area of their policy that I wanted to talk about, which ties into the end of the Carta dynasty, which is defense policy. You mentioned that they built big defensive walls after a while, despite Mongol, you know, uh, disagreements about doing that. And yet the dynasty, for all its successes, did come to an end. What brought about its end? Perhaps we can talk a little bit about that as well. Sure. Um, in chapter 10, the last chapter of the book, I actually talk about the fortified landscape of Herat and its uh, surroundings. Now, this fortified landscape is not just the walls of the square city of Herat, the one mile by one mile by one mile square, 
Um, there were suburbs, as we would call them today, around the, the inner city of Herat. The inner city of Herat really housed the madrasas, the mosques, uh, some of the madrasas, some of the mosques, the, including the famous, now 900-year-old uh, Friday mosque, uh, the Masjid Jami of Herat, really beautiful structure, and the citadel, and uh, the bazaars, and various other, as well as there were some residences as well. It's, but it's one mile square, so it's relatively small. Around that, and we don't know the exact extents, is when is, is you had these so-called suburbs. They also had kanakas and uh, madrasas and, and, and hundreds, if not thousands of homes, uh, caravanserais, various other things. And they all required some sort of protection. So the Mongols, sorry, the, 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 the Kardish threw up a second wall, which is known, we just call it the Kartid Wall, because they did it. And this wall is considered something like four miles by four miles by four miles. I'm not doing kilometers. I'm sorry. Anyway, um, it's a very large area covered by that wall. Now, a lot of historians before have just assumed that this wall was designed fight off invaders like the Mongols or Tamerlane or whatever it might be. Um, I disagreed and I kind of showed how that goes. I said this is a very common type of defensive wall which was there to protect the suburbs. And this is common in many other societies, um, pre-modern, where um, actually, you know, Istanbul, uh, Bukhara, Samarkand, they've had them as well is you try and encompass the suburbs within defensive wall, but it's mainly there with a few patrols to kind of keep people safe in their beds at night to prevent these armed bands, these raiders who just swoop in, you know, they raid a farm or homes, kidnap people, especially women, and ride off into... Uh, wherever they came back from. This continued, by the way, in, in, in into 19th century Iran. Um, so this wall was not there, was there just to defend against raiders, but not against an invading army. And this is essential to security and to the economy, because it just really goes back to our earlier point, which is as long as there's, if there isn't physical security, people will not remain in a particular city because they see absolutely no purpose in trying to, you know, little purpose in trying to work hard, earn money, uh, and to build a home or furnish the home if they're going to be constantly raided and their children kidnapped. And kidnapping children and the women was very, very common. They were used as, as slaves and concubines and whatever. So that this was... This is was critical, and so this is what the Cardians tried to do. Now, I think you were also asking in terms of why they would prove prove inadequate, and I think that that can be answered in two ways. One of which is the Cardian wall, which was only designed to hold off predators, was inadequate uh, against the army of. Uh, Tamerlane or Timur, as he's known in Persian. Um, 
And it was very easy for him and his men to breach that wall and to flood the suburbs. But then they come up against the citadel and the inner fortifications of Herat, one mile, the one mile walls and uh, the curtain walls and uh, hundreds of 140 odd towers uh, with armed men and uh, artillery and various other things. Why did they prove inadequate? Um, I think they weren't properly, they weren't, the city wasn't really defended because I think uh, the defense was half-hearted. The first person to point this out actually was Professor Lawrence Potter who wrote a dissertation, great dissertation on the Cartids uh, like 20, 25 years ago. And he pointed out that defense of Herat was very lackluster. I'm not sure if that's the word he used, but, and that made me think about this. And it's true. When I read through some of these sources, it just seemed as if the defenders of Herat really didn't want to fight. And they were just hoping for a deal, that the boss would go out there and talk to Tamerlane and say, listen, bud, let's make a deal. You know, I keep my head. You can have what the city. He didn't do this at first. Uh, he decided to, Peter already caught, that is, he decided to fight for a bit. But then eventually... The city was surrendered. His, his mom, he actually sent his mom out to talk to Tamerlane. <laughs> Always a sign that one's authority is, uh, has been lost. <laughs> yeah, so uh, she goes out and, you know, meets him and greets him and, you know, the city is surrendered. And uh, so I think, you know, actually this, you know, I, we, I, can, we can, I was kind of being facetious and joking with sending the mom out and all of that, but. In many ways, this is sort of like how cities surrender. They work things out in the sense is <clears throat> if you resist too fiercely and you wind up killing a lot of the attackers, when they do take the city, they're going to punish you really hard. And that means the three days of rampaging, where they just burn everything, they rape every, you know, uh, rape the women, murder everybody, and they steal everything. And this bit in massacre. It's actually known as a general massacre in Persian. So you don't want to provoke to that point, but you have to maintain your honor too to a certain point and fire a few shots and hope that nobody really gets hurt. So there might have been some of that going on as well. But there was also things going on in the background, as I mentioned in the story about secret negotiations going on between, you know, led by the Sufis of Jam uh, uh, and Tamerlane in terms of how can we open the gates of Harad and you know, you take the city and we all keep our heads and our political positions and our wealth. So this was also not a very uncommon thing to do because pragmatism tended to rule. I mean, people were like, look, you go fight Genghis Khan and you're just going to wind up in the whole city burned to the ground, right? Whereas if you, you know, and Genghis Khan actually, this is, this is exactly how the Mongols did think. They would say, you have two choices. You can surrender the city and you'll be fine. Or if you don't, we'll burn it to the ground. And some people said, sure, fine, come on in. And others were like, hey, we'll fight you, buddy. Don't worry. You know, and then this is how a lot of them got uh, got murdered. I mean, the cities wound up getting wiped out. Or the Mongols were so angry that they just simply, like Nishapur, this is what happened, Marv and Bach, um, and uh, they just went, all out to destroy the cities. 
So this sort of negotiation was probably going on and purely Brad didn't really understand how to um, how to, to deal with it properly. But I'm guessing we don't really know this issue. Don't talk about the internal debates. We just know about one faction that was actually secretly negotiating, uh, one faction within the Carthage court and in and in Herat, the Sufis, the ulama, these chaps, they were kind of quietly having a conversation with Tamerlane and with Tamerlane's viziers and so on, saying, how do we work something out so that there's minimal violence? Um, and then I think when Peter Ali's mom went out, I think it was basically an acknowledgement that I agree, I'm also going to negotiate. We're not going to have any more conflict. And so when Tamerlane took the city, he basically ex- extracted a ransom from the city and he emptied out the Carthage treasury. He deported about 200 people, uh, which is actually a small number, but they were notables. And I'm guessing these are probably people who were who were Carthage loyalists. And he probably just had them deported just to keep them from causing trouble. But he didn't really cause any rampage. He, did. he, he had his troops are very disciplined there was no rampaging, there was no raping, murdering, none of that stuff. Enslaving. Enslaving was actually a very big thing. I think I talk a lot about it in the book, is that this was actually a very tough element in society at the time, is that people were cash. And um, they also social utility like the women. So, you know, enslaving populations, sometimes a whole population, or able-bodied population, murdering the older people, uh, was actually a very common feature. So I think a lot of histories tend to focus a lot on the killings by the Mongols, um, but it's not just the Mongols. It, it, it's also, even going back to Alexander the Great, he was actually one of the biggest slave takers, um, and he needed it for the cash. He captured slaves and he sold them um, as fast as he could because he needed, he needed the money. So being enslaved was actually a big fear as well. Uh, people could always, you know, taken off to some strange land and, um, you know, like Mongolia or someplace like that. And in many ways, I think even today, French Persian-speaking communities probably are descendants of uh, those who were captured and enslaved and uh, shipped off to Central Asia. But anyway, so so Herat actually, by not fighting too firmly, survived. And uh, I think that was actually a very smarter move on the part of everybody involved. Um, including the resistors. I think given some of the carded army might have felt we don't really want to uh, fight and get our heads cut off, especially since we don't have much loyalty to the boss, which they didn't, I think, because um, the boss had been a bit of a problem child for a bit, for, for much of his, uh, his uh, kingship. And I do talk about that in terms of the campaigns that he had waged against the Shia, which had led to... Nishapur quarter being ruined, the economy ruined over there. It also taxed the Carthage army because they had to spend a fortune over multiple campaigns over multiple years uh, fighting away from home. Um, and so I'm sure there were elements in the army who were part of the Sufis' plot to hand over the city to Tamerlane, keep their positions, keep their jobs, keep the money, and most of all, keep the heads. 
I mean, that's that's interesting. And I, I guess that brings me to my last question, which was, I was curious about sources because one of the things I think you do a good job of in the book is bringing a lot of different sources together, thinking about how what's said and unsaid in them. And so in describing these different aspects of the history, uh, I think you do a good job of thinking through what's really going on, what might be going on, what's being implied in some of the sources or not. So I'm, I'm just curious as a last question, working with the number of sources to do this history, were there ones that you particularly enjoyed working with that you found particularly frustrating? I, I'm just curious about that as a way of... Yeah, uh, in the introduction, I do talk about the sources, and I do kind of mention some of their biases and their uh, their foci and so on. Very quickly, what I will say is that most of them tend to be um, political and military history-related stuff, uh, and with very little information, as I mentioned, about social and economic history. they also tend to be palace-oriented because writers were sponsored often by the court. Um, writers have to eat as well, and so there was no great publishing industry where they made money by selling their books. So somebody actually paid them, why don't you write a history of the cartoons or the history of this or history of that? And so you there is that bias involved in there. And that is something that one needs to correct with. And I have some caveats in there, and I always mention certain numbers. Please don't take them at face value. This is just, you know, it could be inflated, and things, especially things in the casualties. They're all hyperbolic, you know, things like so many hundreds of thousands of people were murdered, and, you know, and actually if you extrapolate from that, you'd think like some millions of people were actually killed by the Mongols. I'm not really, you know, this is some of the historians have really worked, who have worked on these issues have said it's, it's impossible, these numbers just simply don't work. So we we have all these biases built into it. But in terms of some of the ones that I like to read, uh, I think Hafizia Brew is really one of them that I really like. He is... Um, very good with the language because he was trained in Arabic and Persian, knows literature and all of that, but he's not verbose the way some Persian writers tend to be, uh, which is, you know, they're very florid. It's just, it's just like a style that actually some of it continues to, to this day where they will, you know, say like the great conquering army of the great exalted ruler, Timur, and its magnificent armies on stallions crossed the Oxus, whereas, you know, Hafiz the Brew or I, who can be very terse, uh, would say, Tamerlane and his army crossed the Oxus. Simple declarative sentence. They would not do that. Just go all these verbs and ad- adjectives in there and just have to try to unravel. So Hafiz the Brew, you don't have too much of that. Um, and he was also a companion to Tamerlane, so he actually has some great insights. Uh, from what he has heard, because Tamerlane was illiterate in the in the literal sense, but he was functionally literate because he actually had a lot of smart people around him who read Arabic, Persian, Turkish, all these things, and he would have them uh, read to him. He's actually a very, very intelligent man, actually. He was crazy as hell, but intelligent. Um, and so he was quite learned in terms of military strategies, politics, and various other things. And Harfiz Ebru was one of these people around him. And including some of the deportees, you know, from different places, uh, he or people who were invited, quote unquote, invite air quotes, uh, to live with in, in Samarkand were great Islamic scholars and various other people because he actually had these great uh, conversations with these people, you know, these 
debates so that he would learn stuff from. So some of that might be reflected in, in, in Hafiz Yabru's works. The other one is, of course, Seyf al-Harabi. At first, I didn't much like it because the printed version, uh, there are two editions. There's a Calcutta edition from 1940-something. I forget how many pages that is. The Tehran edition from about 20 years ago is about 750-odd pages, uh, including footnotes. It's actually a very good edition. But uh, Hafiz Yabru just... Is very prolex. I mean, he just goes on and on and on for hours and hours and hours about uh, this campaign or this king or that. So it's it's a bit of a pain to read. But after a while, you kind of get to like the guy and his and his rhythm and his and his um, uh, and, and his information. And, and I think he's also done a great job. I must say, also of preserving the Persian language of the period. He died around thirteen twenty, but you know there are a lot of words in there that are from the vocabulary of Harar, from Quran, Khorasan, from the thirteen. You know, late 1200s, the early 1300s, that are exclusively pre- pre- preserved in his in his book. Because some words I couldn't understand; they're not in any dictionary. Yeah, they're not in any dictionary. So you know, he's actually as a literary source. Uh, and, and I really would encourage uh, people who are in in Persian literature to uh, to read through it for the sake of literature, and to see what they can learn from that. So there is. That element. There's, there's history in there, good history in there. So one just has to use the caveats and to, and to realize that he's the king's, um, funded by the king, and therefore won't you know tell you about the king's warts necessarily. Well, I mean, this I guess so. My final question then to you is, what your next project will be? Are you still going to be focusing on some of these sources, or are you looking at some new topic now? Well, what 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 are you working on at the moment? Oh, well, thank you very much for this question, because this is time for me to throw in my disclaimer. Um, hopefully, with the end of this interview, we'll be the last time the word Khorasan or Harad come out of my mouth. Um, the reason being is that uh, I've spent maybe, now what do we have, 14 odd years, you know, working on Khorasan, Harad, Sufis of Jam, um, modern and also medieval stuff as well. I love Khorasan, I love these sources, I love these histories, but I don't want to be kind of bogged down in that particular region for the rest of my um, scholastic, you know, academic career, so to speak, because um, I think as historians, as scholars, we should not kind of always stay in our comfort zone. Um, so anyway... As you know from having read through the book, there are a lot of references in the book to Harat, to, to Yazd, and um, the development of Yazd in the Mongol period. And the reason for this is Yazd is a lovely city for those who have not visited. It's out in the desert, in central Iran. It dates back several thousand, maybe five, six thousand year old city, beautiful city. And it's thrived despite being in a very, very hot region and not having much overground water. And it has done so yeah, because they, they've they learned to, to tap the underground water resources very well. So I actually want to write about Yaz, its geography, its history, and its um, how during the Mongol and early Timurid period, Timurid period it thrived and became actually a very big center of the textile trade in Iran and the world, really. Uh, and textile means cottons and silks that were exported to 
the westwards towards Baghdad and then into Anatolia and eastwards and also down into the Persian Gulf and from there elsewhere. And that monies that came in from this textile trade went again to, you know, these people were ulama, Sufi shrines, etc. And they were also rebuilding as well as some of the, the, the emirs, commanders. They also did a lot of pious construction and those who visit Yazd will see some of these beautiful, beautiful mosques and uh, Kanaka shrines, buildings. I mean, it's just amazing some of the architecture that has survived from the 1300s and 1400s uh, in Yazd and that is comes from these pious constructions by wealthy people of the 1300s and 1400s. Most of them were in some way or the other involved in uh, in the textile trade. So that's sort of like one of my projects. I have another project as well, but we don't want to run up too much of your time here talking about it. But it's a bit, a bit of a modern history as well, because I also don't want to do exclusively me- uh, medieval and um, want to do something on modern history as well. Oh, well, we'll see about that mysterious one. But the forthcoming book on Yaz sounds like it will be very interesting. I guess to close to close up, I I think you're it's a it's a it's a good idea to focus on these cities, right? Because cities and urban centers was how people experienced their the political world in this time period. So instead of yeah, instead of looking at Iranian history as if it's this obvious endpoint, by looking at these cities in the region, you really do I think express more of what people how people understood their lives at, at the time. Exactly. Um, you know, there is actually some you know, a lot of studies on these things, uh, in, including one I can't remember the name of it. I read it a long time ago. Um, it's it's uh, I think it, it, it is more about how people have a mental map in their heads of their of their cities. So even if they go somewhere else, they still have that influence of that city, and and it's. Um, geographical as outlook and as well as actually the street mapping. A good example of that is someone like me. <laughs> um, I grew up in New York, so you know, I have a very good idea of, um, my brain is kind of trained with this whole north, south, east, west grid system of New York. So I, I land in a place like Los Angeles or like I'm right now here in Miami and maybe don't have this grid system necessarily, how it affects our minds and how we react to it and how we deal with getting lost. It's actually a very interesting thing. So yeah, you're right about the city histories are very important in that respect. But the cities, you know, if you look at a city like Qom, for example, I mean, nowadays everybody thinks of Qom as, you know, um, the land of the mullahs and this is where all of these, but they don't realize that this also developed around the fact is that the economy, the agriculture that produced the money, that produced the seminaries, and the seminaries are the are, you know are where you the scholars were trained and where uh, trained scholars are now teachers as ayatollahs or, or or you know whatever rank they may have. So that a lot of that comes back over hundreds of years of the city's growth, usually from an agricultural economy. And the wealth that was put in, excess or surplus wealth, as it's known, was that was put into developing madrasas and mosques and various other things that gave rise to Qom as a city of scholarship. Well, after Yaz, maybe Qom can be next. 
In any event, uh, I want to thank you very much for being on today. Uh, I hope listeners will go out and find and read Shivan Mahendraja's new book, History of Herat. And uh, thank you very much for being on the program. <laughs>